Jeff Copsetta, and Henry Sledge. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast, your favorite World War II-based podcast. Welcome back for another Monday night. Both Jeff and Henry are out this week, but never fear, because our new stand-in on rotation guest host, Mr. Dennis Blocker, is back once again, second week in a row. Mr. Blocker, how are you doing today, sir? Very well. Thank you very much for having me. It's an honor. Uh, I appreciate you being able to stand in for Jeff and uh, Henry and helping us keep our show going on and going on and going on. And before we kick things off, let's just do get all the stuff out of the way like we always do. We want to hear from you. Send us an email to mailcall at WTSPWorldWar2.com. Whether you have questions, comments, suggestions on books, or perhaps you know a topic that we need to talk about, or even better still, perhaps you know more about a topic that you feel that we need to talk about and you want to come on to talk about it. So if you think you can help uh, hang out for 45 minutes and indulge our audience in a topic that you feel needs to be covered in World War II, we will happily have you on the show. Send us an email to mail call at WTSPWorldWar2.com. And while you're on your computer and you're typing away and you're heading to our website, while you're there, go ahead and click on the uh, support the cause link. Sign up for Patreon. It only costs you a dollar a month. We eat. We love each and every one of you who help support the show by signing up for Patreon. And our last request while you're there, go ahead and click on that YouTube link and follow us and subscribe and enjoy every Tuesday, Monday. I'm sorry. I'm so, I'm, I'm still got the brain fog for being out all last week. But yes, you can join us every Monday night for each new episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. And if you only know us from YouTube, we are on all the major podcast apps, whether it's iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, we're there. And if you listen to us on iTunes or some of those other apps, please go ahead and give us a five-star review. And uh, while you're doing that, I'm going to take a quick sip because after all, after all this time, we go live and now i got a horse in my throat. But Dennis, um, I don't want to get too deep into it because Jeff will be back next week and we don't want to steal his thunder. But hey, when the cat's away, the mice will play. You and Jeff got to hang out this weekend, and you guys are hanging out at an event. You want to give us a quick a little sneak preview, gives people something to tune in for next week when Jeff gives his full rundown of your experience hanging out with Jeff this weekend out at the uh, Living History event? Yeah, that was pretty awesome. It was at Stinson Airfield at uh, what used to be Brooks Air Force Base here in San Antonio. They have the Tex Hill Wing of the Commemorative Air Force uh, located there tremendously run operation of that uh, particular unit and uh, of course you know to have the name tex hill associated with your uh, unit means you got to be a little bit cutter cut above and uh it was interesting that when i walked on the airfield there i actually remembered uh that that's where i i was there for a Doolittle raiders reunion and that particular day they had four b-25s fly in wow. in formation and i just remember looking up and the sun was going down I mean, <laughs> it was it was magical, and I knew it was probably going to be probably one of the last times ever ever four B twenty fives would be flying together like that. It was, it was awesome. But Jeff, you know, and his son Logan were all dressed up, and I'll let them talk about it. And they were representing uh, what we're passionate about, and uh, a lot of great contacts, uh, future speaking opportunities. I'll let him talk about that as well. But uh, it was it was a great opportunity, great time. Yeah, we sent you guys out there, and we set Jeff up with the microphone and the laptop, and we were going to do a live stream, but after he 
got set up, the door's open, he just texts me, he's like, it's going to be way too loud in here, it's going to be nothing but background noise, it's just not going to work, and it, and it happens. Um, that's the good thing about being indoors at an air show in Texas. Um, <laughs> you can't overlook the necessity of air conditioning, but furthermore, um, people who do a lot of living history events, they, whether they go to outdoor museums, um, whether they're Civil War reenactments or just living history events or World War II reenactments at a field somewhere. It's one thing to be out in the hot heat in an open grass field. It's another thing to be out in a hot heat on a tarmac or a runway where that concrete is just radiating that heat. And I've, I've done sun and fun down here a few times and, um, it gets, I, I, when I did the photo shoot with the, um, Memphis bell movie, I got sunstroke. I got heat stroke that day because we had a Jeep take us out there. It was like probably about a mile and a half from our bivouac. We had a Jeep take us out there. We're wearing full, the full leathers, the full getup, flight suits underneath, the wool hats, everything. Middle of August in Florida, out there on the tarmac, doing the photo shoot, photo shoot, got the full size pilot bags, got the parachute harnesses, the whole, the whole setup. Look around. Where? Where where did the Jeep go? Oh, he he had to do things. We had to schlep that mile and a half back in full gear in August. And I got back and I stripped down and put on my Marine Corps HBTs and I sat down in the bottom of that pup tent and the thing just started spinning and I could not get enough liquids in me. I ended up going home early that day because I just I could not suffer through heat stroke. And yeah. uh That's serious. It 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 makes you realize how hot like people in like who live in like downtown New York city <laughs> or like downtown Houston or LA when it's just no tree cover, no shade except for the buildings and just all that sun radiating off the concrete. It's just like, but, but with that being said, Peleliu, Tarawa, those guys are fighting and that sun's just beating down off that coral rock and just radiating back up. You know, all the vegetation's gone. The guys blasted the hell out yeah. of those beaches for four or five days before landing. And what buildings and structures were there, they're either inhabited by the enemy or they've been blown to hell and back. And so you're just out there baking in the sun on that hot coral. And mm -hmm. it's it's one and the same. Yeah, you think about those guys in North Africa too, you know, in the Tunisia and fighting the sun but also fighting the desert fox <laughs> it's goodness that's a very good point and uh we don't bring it up too much on this show we really need to get someone on here who is familiar with the africa campaign um we talked about it briefly when henry and i were gushing all over the great mini series about the um the sas and um on that series and them being out in the Jeeps and all that. And I can never understood why they cut all the front pillars off the Jeep, except for one post. I didn't know if it helped with the airflow and cooling in the desert or what, but yeah, being out there in the desert sun and just shorts, maybe high socks to keep the help, keep minimize the sand interaction. But yeah, just roasting out there in the hot, hot sun, just, makes it that much worse. But uh, we're going to change things up a little bit because, you know, we've had a lot of authors on here. We've had a lot of research historians. And and during the interview process, we kind of hit the question once or twice and, and we, you know, give a brief answer. But, you know, Dennis and I have some time here and Dennis 
knows all about this because he's done some research and he's helped write some books and um, other forms of media. And so we're going to kind of sit down and talk about, you know, the steps and how to go about doing research, whether it's research on your family members, uh, trying to do research on a particular group. Uh, maybe you're trying to find some information on a, on a battle that doesn't get enough cover, at least you feel, and, and steps to, you know, resources, how to go about tracking things down and just, you know, get a little bit deeper into the research and development aspect of, of World War II history or just military history in general. So if, if you're a young cat and you're tuning in, Dennis, or somebody's wanting to find something out about a relative, whether it's a great-grandfather or an uncle, or whether it's World War II or perhaps a more modern-day war, what's one of the first steps someone should go through? Should they brainstorm, come up with a list of things that they want to research? That way, when they do get to a library or to the location of the data, they're not sitting there saying, oh, what am I looking for? What's like the grassroots steps of, okay, in this procedure, what's your flow chart of how to go about using your time efficiently when you actually have access to um, data portals? Yeah, right. So before you, you you leave your house, you need to have done some, some serious thinking and it's going to involve a notepad and a pencil and you're going to have to decide what it is your goals are for your research. What is it that you're trying to learn? And you need to be aware, too, that your your goals are going to change because you're going to find information and it's going to open up portals that you never even dreamed of. And it's going to be very exciting, but it can also be very daunting. And uh, it's going like, for instance, when my mother asked me to find out what happened to my grandfather during World War II, I just thought it was going to be a matter of finding out what ship he was on and then saying, well, he was here and I I went to the library and pulled an encyclopedia and discovered that he was here, 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 and here. But, you know, it didn't happen that way. And what ended up transpiring was the when I started to dig in, that it just became, <laughs> it became this path that led me literally across the country and by air, by plane, by uh, car, and uh, in, it's just phenomenal. I have totes full, just absolutely full of notepads that are just chuck full of, for instance, this one here. This is, uh, I retired this one in December of 2005. And when you open it up, you can see that there is, and it's absolutely just chuck full of information, highlights, arrows pointing different directions strike throughs saying dead end so first off you have to get okay what's your core like what is it that you want to learn you want to learn what happened to let's say your great grandpa during world war ii do you want to learn about your great uncle who died and your mother your grandmother talked about him um are you in high school and you were given a school project um just jot down some things that you're interested in knowing what, what his name was, what was his full name? What was his birthday? Where was he born? Not where was he raised, but where was he born? Then where was he raised? Um, then you can dig around and you can find out, okay, was he Navy, Army, Air Corps? You know, you go down this path, you find out the solid stuff, and then we can get in, we'll get into how you start narrowing it down. Yeah, I think step one, obviously a first name, a last name, 
and actually where they're born or where they lived is is very those are like the basic things you need obviously a first name and last name but if they're like you know a lot of people from the era um, a lot of them had very similar first names and last names you know you would think a preston creed or preston woods um isn't that common but through my searching there was like 15 of them but because yeah. I knew Preston Woods of Richwood, Kentucky, okay, when they signed their quote-unquote draft cards or enlistment cards, it, the key information we'll have is their first name, their last name, and where they enlisted at and where they're from. And so if you at least have the first name, the last name, and the town they grew up in, and a birthday kind of helps, but when it comes to like World War II, you know, you're already going to have a general idea what the age was probably going to be between, somewhere between the ages of 17 and 23, unless yeah. they're already a, um, yeah. professional, you know, soldier. And that, if that was the case by that point, your family's already going to have a lot of history prior to the war. If, if they were pre-listed years prior. And so when it came to my, me trying to find some information on my grandfather, um, first name, last name, and the town he was living in helped, substantially yes because it takes the united states and just that simple information you get to shrink it down into a little geographic area for instance and that's a really good point because it's like if i'm looking for from my grandpa's ship if i'm looking for arthur stein well if i'm looking for arthur stein in san antonio texas i'm golden i'm gonna find him but if i'm looking for arthur stein in new york city in new york <laughs> or new jersey or the East Coast, forget mm -hmm. about it. I yeah. didn't find him for 20 years. His son finally found me after 15 years of looking for him. So, yeah, great point. I mean, you have to find where they're from. And if you can't, it's not over. It's not a done deal, but it definitely helps if you can start off. Um, a next to Ken is helpful because when they enlisted, um, especially early on, uh, one of the fun facts that I found out was my grant, and I still – Sadly, my research didn't really take place until long after my grandfather passed away, but probably five or six years after my grandmother passed away. And my parents don't really have the answer because I don't think it was ever a question. They thought to ask. And the only thing I can speculate is the geographic location of where his family was. And that is on my grandfather's dog tags, he had his new father-in-law listed as his next kin, my grandmother's father. And to me, that's a little weird. I'm like, do you have a falling out with your own family? Then mm -hmm. I got thinking, well, my grandfather's from deep eastern Kentucky. We come from coal miner. We're coal miner stock. Whereas he left eastern Kentucky, moved to northern Kentucky to get away from the coal mining thing. And he actually started working at my grandmother's father's dairy farm. And that's how they met. And then as he right before he went off to war, they got married. And the only thing I can think is he put Maxwell, her father's name, on the dog tags probably because with his standing in the community and it being outside of Cincinnati, it was probably a hell of a lot easier to get information to him, whether through Western Union, uh, regular mail, or even a phone call. Or perhaps he had a falling out. I, I, I don't want to think about the negative side. I'm just, I, I like to think, well, probably for whatever reason, it just made more sense yeah, and maybe that's where his mom was, you know. Yeah. And he probably would have wanted her to know if anything happened. And so, you know, a next to Ken will help. And obviously, if 
someone in your family has their dog tags, service number, that'll open up huge doors. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, insert uh, separation papers from the military. Yeah. And in that regard, uh, one of the things that kind of derailed me early on, uh, almost derailed me, it did in fact discourage me for a little bit, was the fact that when I did the research on getting the service records of my grandfather, I was told that they had burned up in a fire in St. Louis. And there was in fact a large fire that destroyed records, but it impacted the army. And so, you know, I had been turned away and then I found out that the Navy was unscathed and I was able to get his papers. And and I tell that to everyone because I was definitely turned away. Uh, And so I just want everybody to know if you're looking for Marine Corps, uh, Navy, uh, you you should definitely send off. I would send off anyway because not all the army records were destroyed. But anyway, you know, yeah, yeah, definitely try and get those service records. Yeah, definitely the Marine Corps makes it a little easier because I think my grandfather may be one of those whose records did, in fact, get swallowed up in that fire because, like, I was able to find a picture of his draft card through. Uh, I think classmates or whatever. Sorry, my dogs are barking. And here's the mystery I'm trying to figure out with my grandfather. So I have his wedding photo. And on his wedding photo, the way he's facing, actually, I have it here on my bench. So the way he's facing, you can actually see his left shoulder. All right. And yeah. on the edge of his left shoulder, you can't really see it here because of the frame he has a patch that I was able to put out and resource and found out that it's the United States 15th army. Oh, wow. But here's the rub. The 15th army wasn't formed until late 45, early 44, but he enlisted in 42. And because I can't see his other shoulder, I can't see his other shoulder with his other patch. I don't know who he because I know all I all my family ever told me is he did grave registration in Europe. Obviously, when you're most of your time over in Europe is served burying your comrades, you don't do a whole hell of a lot of talking about it. And so I have very little information on clearly if the 15th Army didn't form until for late, you know, late 45 and he enlisted in 42, he had to have been, you know somewhere prior to that. And so I would love to figure out, but once again, I've, I've keep running into walls when it comes to his enlistment, because I think his paperwork was the ones that we had mentioned, you know, being burnt up in the fire. In his case, is there anybody else in your family that is a historian that might've got his original (sighs) papers? Yes, but we're talking Kentuckians out of the forties and thirties who like lived and died the whole mantra of we live through the great depression. We save everything. And so everything is packed away in numbers of steamer trunks, camel, like literally the old school camelback trunks, like you see in the old Westerns. And it's, you know, I always say, Hey, somebody gets a chance to go through the old basement, but it's just, no one really has the um, the inclination or the desire to put forth the time. And whenever I'm up there on, on vacation and that, I don't have the 
the benefit of spending hours in my uncle's basement because last because I actually how I got my replica dog tags was my aunt has his dog tags and she took a photo and sent them to me and so then I went to World War II dog tags and had exact replicas created and so just using his name his birth date and what little information I had off his dog tags I've been doing some research but um, I've really ran into dead ends with you know I, like I said I do have a picture of his draft card I know where he enlisted I know what year he enlisted um, but Prior to him being a member of the 15th Army, I really don't know his his um his history. Would you guys knock it off and try to do a show? <laughs> <laughs> the Boston Terriers are in here going at it. Yeah, so let's see. Uh, the 15th United States Army, commonly known as the 15th Army, was a field uh, field army of the United States in the Europe Theater of World War II. It was... Um, it was the last United States field army to see service in Northwest Europe during the war. It was commanded by General George S. Patton and his death, blah, blah, blah. Uh, the 15th Army first activated in August 21st, 1944. So it didn't become a group until 44. But once again, we know due to his draft card that he did enlist in 42. So does he, um, was he from a small town in Kentucky? Richwood, Kentucky. All right. So a lot of times, like either the county newspaper, um, they, they, they would publish letters or updates from the guys from the front. And those those new old newspapers might, you know, they might be a resource that you could look to to see if there's any mention of where he's been and he's written home and his mom is or whoever has, you know, submitted the letter to the newspaper. Um, sometimes those those will work out. You know, it's funny you say that. Also, Go ahead. Uh -huh. Keep talking. Buy me time. Yes, sir. Also, there's, you know, the records at the uh, National Archives in uh, College Park, Maryland, you know, for as far as graves registration uh, units. Uh, it'd be it'd be worth, you know, pulling those up and seeing if there's any mention of um, now that's going to be a lot of records, but. You know, they might have unit histories like in the first couple pages. Um, some of those units, what they'll do is they'll, they'll, uh, for instance, my my uh, my great grandpa was in World War One, and he was in an ambulance corps in France. And it the first pages of the war diary had a couple pages of who was in the unit. And uh, so, I mean, that's something that might pan out for you as well. Definitely, it's going to be one of those things where every time you go visit your family, you're probably just going to have to pick a trunk and do a trunk and visit. But uh, that's probably going to be your best bet. But uh, those look, looking at those, uh, that is definitely something that I've done for anybody that I've researched, including my grandfather. When I went to Park Falls, Wisconsin, I went to the, uh, the, the library there and I talked to the head librarian and says, look, my name is Dennis. I'm doing research for World War II. My grandpa was raised here. Um, I, I've, there is scuttlebutt that you have actual newspapers, still originals from the twenties, the thirties and the forties. And, uh, I would really like to see if, if you've got those, I've researched at the archives, I've gone through all the classes. I'm very professional handling these documents. And, uh, she looked at me up and down and she kind of hummed and said all right follow me so she took me behind this chained door 
And we went up these ancient steps to the third floor and she got this, in my mind, it was a skeleton key, but it was probably a regular key. But she pulled out this skeleton key and opened up this old creaky closet. And, and I looked in and there were just volumes of newspapers that had been bound back from those days. And on the spine was written 1925, 1924, 1939, 1942. And she says, would you like this room for three days? And I was like, <laughs> yes, that please. would be amazing. So it's that stuff is out there. And absolutely. And, and it's funny you say that because you just sparked a, a memory. My sister and I, I had to find it on my phone. I was looking for it on my computer. It's a newspaper oh, really? clipping of my grandfather. But somebody didn't clip too well. They weren't interested in the whole story. They just wanted a glimpse because listen to where this thing cuts off. Like, you're me, right? You're looking for information. I want to know where he served, who he served with. So it says, P uh, PFC Preston C. Woods, husband of Mary Ann Maxwell Woods of Richwood, was honorably discharged from the U.S. Army November 10th at um, Atbury, Indiana. He served approximately three years in service, spending two years overseas in England, France, Belgium, and Germany with the 1st, 3rd, and 15th Army. So we got a little bit there. He's with the 1st and 3rd. Yeah. PFC Woods wears the ETO ribbon with two battle stars, American Theater ribbon, Good Conduct ribbon, World War II victory ribbon, and presidential... <laughs> it cuts off the presidential citation. It's like, who got this clip out? So we know he is what the first, the third, and the fifteenth. Got two. He has two uh, combat stars and a, a presidential citation for Lord only knows. So it's wow. like, who, who cut this? Why would you stop a presidential cite? Like right. That's the last word. Presidential citation. They just clipped it right there. I'm like, come on, you gotta be kidding. <laughs> yeah, me. but you got some good nuggets there, though. Yep, so he was in England, France, Belgium, and Germany for, with the 1st, the 3rd, and the 15th Army. Wow. Yeah. And so, yeah. I, well, I, you know, then you get to track, okay, well, what units had that route, you know? That's a good point. So, yeah. What units went, took that route? That's that. Those are some good nuggets there. And so the question is, which one of those got the presidential citation? Was it the 1st, the 3rd, or the 15th? There you, go. there you go. And he had to have earned it. He had to have been a part of it to earn it. Yeah. So he, he could have wore it if he was in the unit, but it wouldn't have had that uh, designation showing that he had been a part of it when it was earned. So that's pretty cool. And so through my rundown of trying to find acquire information, I've came through a few websites and a lot of times just because I bounce around from computer to computer, I have bad memory. I use the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast page as a kind of a repository for information and so if you guys actually go to WTSPWorldWar2.com, there's right on our toolbar, it says World War II Vet Information Resources. And I have put links to some of the more common, but a few of the not so common websites that I have found. And I'm That's sure awesome. if Dennis has any more, he'll send to me. We'll continue to update this. But quick rundown. Obviously, we've got the National Archive access to the archive database. The um, the NARA's National Pres uh, Personal Records Center standard uh, 100 an 80 request form, the Arlington National Cemetery, World War II POW MIA list. Let's see, the World War II Army and Air Force Casualty, Navy, Marine Corps and Coast Guard personnel list, the Missing Air Crew, World War II USMC Casualty Card Database, the German-American Intern E-Coalition, which is actually pretty cool. If you're here and you're like a third-generation German, maybe your grandfather was a German prisoner who spent time over here in America, 
and you want to find out where he was stationed, there is a website that has the German-American Internee uh, Coalition. You can try to track down information on your German relatives. We also have the Army serial numbers and um, then the Army World War II dog tag numbers websites. And so some, those are some of the websites I tried. But uh, to be honest with you, I got more information off of this one photo that my sister sent of a newspaper clipping that my mom had laying around on her dresser than I have from any of those websites. And so I think you suggesting to people that if they go to the towns where their grandfather or grandmother, absolutely, uncle, whoever. And, and not even the town, but the county seat of the town where he's resided, because they will have kept all the microfilm for all those newspapers. And in that regard, it's well worth getting a subscription to to newspapers.com or us uh, or newspaperarchive.com because they've sent thousands and thousands of people across the country and they've scanned just millions of pages and it has been a tremendous resource for me uh, but irregardless the one thing you're going to have to do is exactly what you just said go to the county seat go to their to the main library get the microfilm and just you know, get some, get some earbuds, put on a cool Victory at Sea soundtrack, and uh, just get after it. My boss walked in my office the other day. Said, "It sounds like the Roaring Twenties in here." Because on, I have my Pandora's World War II swing channel on. Because when I'm working, you know, if I'm listening to modern day hip hop or or music, I'm just I'm just too busy focusing on the lyrics. But I can turn on some stuff from the 20s, 30s, and 40s and have it in the background and still be able to, you know, do my daily routine. And plus it's, you know, it's just, it's nice to have a different environment than the music you listen to while screaming at people in traffic. <laughs> and so it definitely, <laughs> it definitely helps. Um, oh, I was, I was going to say, so, oh, um, now, fold3.com. Have you, was that one on your list? No, you said fold3. Fold three, F O L D, and the number three.com. They have, they sent re, uh, uh, archivists to the National Archives and they scanned every single war diary for every unit in the Navy in World War II, every ship, every tugboat. And there are millions of pages of war diaries. And what's beautiful about that is let's say that your let's say your grandpa was on LCI 473 and you know from getting the uh, crew roster that that he came aboard in in February of 43 and he departed the ship in November of 45. So you know then that anything that transpired during February 43 and November 45 your grandpa participated and he witnessed it, right? Mm -hmm. So, okay, you've got LCI 473. So you go to fold3.com. Now you can look for, L you go to USS Amphibious and you go to LCI 473. But the beauty of it is, because it's all been scanned, is when you type in LCI 473, it'll show you the records from that ship. But it will also show you every other ship that mentions the LCI 473. Wow. You know, that is pretty cool because a lot of people get, I would get disheartened at times because the ship I was looking for wasn't, didn't have a war diary submitted at the end of the war. It was up to the captain and all whatnot to make sure it happened. But darn tootin', sure enough, a bunch of other ships would mention that, you know, and what's beautiful about that is that before the entries, they'll put down the coordinates. You can, 
get if you what I did was I went to the archives in DC and I just asked for my grandpa's deck log. Uh, a lot of times it's like super boring information, but sometimes those guys grew very uh, verbose and they would enter in a lot of great stuff. But more importantly, what's really cool is that if you go and you get to the deck logs of your grandpa's ship, then what you do is you they give you a little declassified thing, a little sticker. You put it on each page and you snap a photo of it without a flash. And then you turn the page and put the sticker there and you snap another one. I mean, you just do that. Just you're, you're getting I would get, you know, over a thousand pages scanned a day. And then what you do is you got to do the work, though. You got to do the work. You got to transcribe it. And that's super painful, but it's going to save you so much at the end. But what's really cool about it is it will give you coordinates. And then what you do is you buy yourself a map of the Pacific. And every day you just pop, 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 pop. And you can actually follow your grandfather through the Pacific. And what's really cool is then you combine that with the war diary, right? So then you know from the war diary that, you know, they were there and they were at Saipan and they were escorting Japanese fishing vessels from Saipan to Tinian after the invasions. And they were, you know, they saw the B-29s taken off and the Marianas Turkey shoot and Japanese zeros coming in and, you know, all this stuff. Then what happens is if you start getting the letters from the, the families, right, you start digging in and getting further, further into it. Then you start plugging in those letters into the timeline. So now you've got the deck log that provided you where they were at. You got the war diary that fills in a lot of the juicy stuff. And then you start getting family letters and those each have a date, right? So mm -hmm. you can plug it in. And it's really cool because like guys like Lawrence Bozarth uh, on the 449 gunboat would say, you know, uh, when he was off Saipan, uh, fishing today, had a great, we, we got to go swimming, jumping off the conning tower, beautiful fish in the water. And then you look over at the timeline and you see that the deck log and you see they were under aerial attack the entire day. Wow. And, uh, it's just really there's some good stuff to be gleaned out there and fold3.com makes that possible with all them war diaries. And, uh, they also have missing air crew reports. Um, and anytime that a B 17 went down B 24 B 25, when they went down, they filled out a missing air crew report MACR. And it was, they would have, they would try their best to get at least three eyewitnesses in that report. And so if your family happened to have been involved in the air war and you know they went down uh, and grandpa never talked about it, he survived, but he never talked about it. Um, the one I looked at the other day, just two weeks ago, uh, the guy bails out, he's going down and all of a sudden he just sees a body go by. And then it's one of his buddies. And then about 30 seconds later, he sees this parachute just fluttering down, the buckles all off and, uh, wasn't properly secured and uh you know that kind of stuff is on there to be discovered and you know what's out there too um you know we talk about this in modern day format of the internet going to all these websites do some deep deep back page google you yahoo searches because you know around 1997 1988, I mean, 1998, 2001, you could have had the son of a World War II vet who decided he was going to make their family a website. And he transcribed all the information he had. It may be in purple font that was big on Yahoo GeoCities in 2001 that has since 
been carried over to a website that they're still paying five dollars a month for just for family history and you might find someone who started a um you know third army second you know regiment third platoon you know this company page and you know they may have interviewed grandfather's friends back in 1994 95 and in 2001 post this up on some little you know page was probably still has old flashing glittery gifts and all that Absolutely. stuff and like this i said the weird font music that comes on mm-hmm, yeah, yeah. you you have that eight, the the eight bit version of like the national anthem <laughs> with the flags at the top that's right <laughs> super yep that's right and uh Artie hunt his family they uh, he they did that for their dad their grandpa and yeah he's got a website up uh at least 100 photos yeah <laughs> at least 100 photos and that's such a good point it's like don't just go for the google hits keep you digging dig deep. deep get dig back deep. in there yeah you might There's... you know you might have to go as far as trying you know if you figure out like a a company name or or battalion name and just google hit and you may find it. The name comes up on some old World War II gun forum from 2004, and then down through that thread, you might find a link. Well, here's my, you know, my cousin's next door neighbor's uncle's started a page, and you'll link over to that. And half the images may be missing because they've been deleted off the server, but there might be a hyperlink buried in there somewhere else to take you over. I mean, the internet's been around quite a while, and so there's a lot of stuff on there that's more than just uh, Facebook and and uh, TikTok. And so you may have to go deep down the rabbit hole there. Yeah. It'd be things like this. Yeah. Arawa interviews, December 19th, 2006. So, you know, I interviewed like four or five guys from Tarawa and I uh, transcribed them and then uh, turned them over to uh, the National Museum of Pacific War. So, you know, there's a lot of resources like that that people don't think about. They just think about, uh, you know, the Library of Congress, Oral History Project, but there's a lot of libraries out there and sometimes it'll be like you said it'll be just some obscure little library in uh shelbina missouri that has that one oral history that you need <laughs> you never know you might find a guy who's doing research who has a a yellow pamphlet with some interviews from some terawa vets who made digitize that and then have some guys who host a podcast put some vo work to it and turn it into an audible format little diary of of these sort of things that that stuff's out there so you, you never know now i know dennis that over zoom that doesn't really relate to you like the audience will hear it and if you go back and listen to to it tomorrow you'll hear the m1 sounds in the background the sound of the canteen rattling wow. i'm serious we should probably you should go through some of those those interviews find like you know a paragraph or two where they're telling a first-hand story and let's yeah. produce it let's turn it into one of these let's put the okay. back like if you go back and listen to this tomorrow because the audience doesn't know this when i play this over it the way zoom just destroys it you don't hear but in that clip when i talk about the canteen you I actually recorded it here in my studio i'm literally bouncing the lid off my canteen like this <laughs> and like <laughs> unscrewing it and so and then when they're shooting I, I got clips in there and then one blocks and so we should take some of those stories and turn them into something that way we can play and people can remember those people you have in that yellow little yellow book let's do something with those let's do it i think it'd be yeah. fantastic and then you can you know go through facebook and maybe send one of those to their grandchild or something 
Oh, that'd be amazing. So that's something we're going to focus on here, and, and we'll um, we'll maybe add a a little audio library on our on our website. And that's one of the things I want to encourage people to do too. Um, we as a society have relied so heavily on the Facebooks and the Instagrams and all that, but once your page turns into what Facebook considers a business or pro- the something that potentially has the ability to gather views, thus revenue. They really knock the attention down on it. So like when you share a post, unless you pay for someone to see it, like no one sees it. And I'm really hoping that we as a digital society start swinging back the pendulum and start visiting real websites again and actually going to places. And so hopefully if people have websites or or have an interest in what we're doing, but maybe they don't want to do a podcast per se, but they want to have a, a publication or a place to get out information. Websites are still a great place to go. And Mm -hmm. you, you know, you can put whatever you want on there. And so I really, that's one of the things I want to start doing with our website is make it a place for people to go to find information or to find more additional little nuggets of history. And so that's something we could do is, um, yeah, let's do go it. through there, Sounds and we'll amazing. we'll edit them up and and get them out. Yeah. And speaking of which, for you living historians, uh, this is something Jeff and I did on our website a while back, and I want to continue doing it. Um, if you're wanting to get into the living history hobby and you don't know where to start, well, where do you guys get the uniforms, or where can we find some hard, you know, more interesting stuff? For example, um, there's a company over in England called K Canvas, and they recreated Blanco. And it's the liquid canvas webbing, and it's the exact color of the Marine Corps web gear so that if you want to retreat your, your old haversack or you have a reproduction haversack or reproduction web belt or even an original web belt, it's the exact same color uh, treatment that they used back then to you know, get it up and going. And that's not something that's easy to find. So if you go to WTSPWorldWar2.com, you click on Quartermasters, and right there it says, hey, K Canvas Liquid Blanco Natural Webbing, and I have a link where you can go and buy it. We also have um, We Stand Alone Reproduction Facebook page. You can go there. Uh, we have links to World War II Impression at the front, What Price Glory, and one, I'm sorry, Jay Murray's Helmet, Frontline Crate Company, Frontline Rations, uh, Man the Line, Atlantic Wall Blanks, World War II Soldier. And so, you know, if you're getting into the hobby and you're looking for some places to get some reproduction stuff and you, you know, you're trying to remember some of these names, just head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com. And for some reason, I have it on. If you click on the arrow by contact us, it'll say social media and then quartermaster, and then you can go there. And um, we also have our history through photos where we take pictures of things of our collections and then we put up histories on them. Um, that's something else I want to continue to add to our website. And so um, we're going to start putting more and more resources over WTSPWorldWar2.com other than just links to our show. And so for people, maybe. You know, we talked about information on tracking down family members, this and that. But once you got your information and you you feel like you've you've squeezed the resources for everything that could be squozen, how does one take that information and you know whether they want to write a you know a two page article for a website, a family history, or you know a self published book? What's what do you what's the second step of okay looking at that information and say how do I take this information, filter it down and put it in a format that's going to be 
consumable. Obviously, we're, we can't give a full dissertation on how to write a book, but we're just kind of give people a little step-by-step, just little, little brainstorm sessions, if you will, on the direction to take their, their information once they acquire it. Right. So you, you get the information. You get uh, Basically, you're getting uh, little nuggets, and it's not the whole meal. In other words, you've got pieces, but they are just pieces. And so you have to fill them with context and you have to be able to uh, fill in the gaps. And that's where your research is going to lead you to um, books about, for instance, if you discover your grandfather was uh, at Bougainville, then you're going to have to look into, all right, well, who's written about Bougainville? Let's find out what it was like. And that way you can really immerse yourself there. Um, watch documentaries about it. You're going to need to listen to guys with oral histories, right? You're going to want to go on to these different websites and uh, get oral histories from guys that were there. They can sit the setting for you. They can get you the mood. They can provide all that. And something that really helps me when I'm writing is I will listen to uh, soundtrack music from World War II movies or uh, Medal of Honor video game it has a tremendous uh, soundtrack from Michael Giacchino and uh, Call of Duty soundtracks, and I'll put myself there. And also, what I'll do, I remember once I, uh, Don, I was, I got a hotel room, even though I live in San Antonio, I got a hotel room in San Antonio for three days. It had a candlewood suite, so it had a little hot plates and this and that. Mm-hmm. I can make my meals. And on the walls, I took all the pictures off the walls that were there, and I put maps of the Pacific, and I put pictures up on the walls, and I had all of my totes all around me. And I had these easel up with the timeline. And then uh, it just so happened that above me, a guy in the tub overflowed and it sank into uh, my room. Well, nothing was damaged. But what it did was it required uh, environmental services to come in. And they came in and they were like, this is kind of spy operation. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, you know, you're going to have to do the, the, the background information, right? And, and I cannot stress this enough. You're going to have to transcribe what you accumulated. That means the letters that you found from the families of the guys that are with your grandfather, they're going to have to be individually transcribed into a Word document. The, or the histories that you were able to find, maybe you found some guy from Spokane, Washington, who was a, a history teacher who loved World War II, and it was his dream to always write a book, but he never got around to it. But he did interview 15 guys. And he made those tapes available and digitized them. He never transcribed them, but he digitized them. And you can download them. That means you're going to have to transcribe them yourself. You've got to do it. Then you got to go through and well, you got to get... on. Let's put a pause right there. Don't get scared by transcribing because we have technology. We yes. have Google Voice the text. And so you log in your Google account, you launch that Word doc, you fire up that microphone, and just like your cell phone, when you're telling your mom the what for, just read your microphone and Google will do its best, unless you have an accent like me, and it'll, it'll transcribe it. And with your audio, you can just play it into the microphone and Google will probably transcribe 75%. You may have to go yes. back, but... And even, even the stuff you take photos of, there are... Um, Typing and handwriting recognition software that will actually take that and convert it into a form. It'll just take the same typing and put it in a word format so you can then go and and edit it on the fly. And so there is technology out there that makes that a lot easier. Even over the last five to ten years, there's been such an yeah, advancement in technology. 
historians are now and researchers have so many more tools. I mean, I, I have these audio tapes, you know, from uh, Charles E. Crandall, LCI Gunboat 471, Lieutenant JG, uh, on computer, and then next to it, transcribed. And that meant play, listen, <laughs> pause, rewind, because mm -hmm. I missed it. Play, I missed it again, he coughed. It was arduous, but why do you do it? You do it so that when you finally get your outline of what you're trying to do, and you that's what you got to do too, is you got to write an outline. Once you finally get that down, then you're going to write about, let's just say like you want to write about Guam and you're doing this sweeping epic series, right? Then you know that you just type in Guam, right? Or uh -huh. you type in um, uh, Amtrak, Right, or you type in LVT, and anybody and from anybody in your resources that ever mentioned an Amtrak or an LVT is going to immediately pop up, and it's going to save you so much time. And yeah, but like you said, can I make your life so easier yes, right now? If you didn't know this, I just typed. You show me that tape cassette. I just went on Amazon. You can get the Reshow cassette player, portable tape player, captures MP3 audio, has USB output on Amazon for $27.98. So if you do come across a, a box of tapes, don't say, well, what am I going to do with these? These are tapes. No one has tapes. You can get a brand new super USB cassette capture about the size of a Walkman. If you guys are too young, know what that is. It's it's a tape player. It's about as big as a Xbox controller or a, a, a very small uh, uh, tablet. And you can just uh, plug it right in your computer and launch a recording software, and you can com convert it right off that tape. You don't have yeah, to. You don't have to take it out and pay cool. someone to do it for you. Yeah, Twenty pretty cool. Twenty-seven dollars USB 2.0. It has. It actually has the old school. It reminds me of the uh, USB adapters you saw in the old Sony CyberShot. <laughs> the one looks like half a stop sign. <laughs> but yeah, it's there. So uh, we can definitely. Oh, there's all kinds of them on here. But yeah, we can definitely uh, convert those those tapes you have, and that is definitely an option as well. But time and work ethic is going to be key to taking this information, and that's what I need to do. I need to get some time. I need to get some time, and and I really want to track down all the information I can on Mr. Preston C. Woods. Um, it's about that time of the show. We're going to change up a little bit, but I'm going to ask you, Mr. Dennis, what you're reading. <laughs> now, when I was it. gone last week, did Jeff ask you in that tone? Because people he like, the, what he you did. reading? What you reading? <laughs> I'm reading Fixed Bayonets. Nice. By uh, Captain John Thompson, uh, World War One uh, Marine Corps. And uh, what's the published date on that bad boy? 1927. Wow. What does 1927 smell like? It smells like victory. It's, the, it's like, well, actually, the, bind, the book binding glue was has more of a maple hue to it. <laughs> real no, quick, not, not uh, we, we always do this, but real quick, when you're talking about setting up your, your historical CIA slash serial killer displays on the wall in the hotel, take some web gear with you. Um, <laughs> webbing has a smell 1942 has a smell and like you know if you're ever wanting to know if something's real or reproduction 
put it right up to your your snout and sniff it because the chemicals they use, especially on web gears, tent, anything canvas-based that they used back in the 40s, is completely different than any reproduction stuff. And if you're trying wow. to create that ambiance, uh, you have a shelter half with you, just throw it in the corner of the room. It'll it'll get that, that 1944 canvas smell in the air. Um, and there's so much thought and memory associated with smell and sound. So you have your, your, your soundtrack, you know, you got your, your candles flickering and now you throw some web gear around the room, just get that smell in the air and that'll complete Love the, it. complete the circuit. So yeah. fixed bayonets. Great idea. So give us the rundown of fixed bayonets other than it was, um, put together with some maple based, uh, <laughs> binding material. <laughs> So, you know, it's, uh, it's very, it's very cool because, um, you know, the, uh, the American attitude comes, comes right across where, you know, we're here, we're going to fix this situation. <laughs> and these guys, you know, the British and the French have just been, you know, just slaughtering, you know, the, it just been getting slaughtered for years, but, uh, the Americans, you know, it's, it's interesting to see them walking in and and he's very uh, open about his impressions of what he's seeing the french officers the french soldiers and uh uh at this point in the book he's kind of looking down on them kind of like that they're second rate and you know he hasn't been tested yet and so i'm really curious to see uh if he's going to make that adjustment once they get into the which they're about to they're right now they're just starting to advance towards the the first line of trenches with the germans so it's it's about to get pretty crazy not the transition out of world war ii but it's in the same realm and we're world war one in this case but last week i was sick i undiagnosed covid only reason i know it's covid is because i felt exactly like you know I've had it twice, and there's two versions, and the one I had, again, is the mild version of malaria. <laughs> it's where all your bones feel like they're breaking. Like, you're like, oh, I feel exactly like uh, Lecky did on Pel- on uh, Pavuvu. You know, you're you're, you're yeah. crapping your ass out. You, you feel like someone's squeezing all your joints. Your bones hurt. You feel like you have mild sunburn, migraine headache. You're so dehydrated. And so Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, I was working from home, and I got my I'm in my studio doing work and I up on my YouTube, um, some guy takes some very cool historical Western stuff and I'm watching the, the real history of Deadwood. I'm watching about, you know, Seth Bullock. I'm watching about real history of Billy the Kid. I don't bring this up so much because you hear it all the damn time, but my grandmother, before she passed away, she went down the timeline. My grandfather that we've sp- spoken about was third cousins through marriage to Jesse and Frank James. So we're, part of the Jesse James family through marriage. And so they're talking about Jesse James and Billy, the kid. And I saw this really cool, interesting fact, you know, we always, they always romanticize the wild West, you know, Billy, the kid, you know, um, the whole, the whole crew he ran with, um, James gang and all that. It was actually, this was put out like before podcasting, but they're actually talking about by today's standards, Billy kid was a serial killer. Hmm. talking about you know the by definition a serial killer is someone who kills more than three people with a cooling off period in between and so they were not t- they were going through the whole billy the kid thing but i bring all that up to say this they say you know oh what was it? they're talking about like it's like maybe i forget the other two but they're, they're bringing up like the top three like 
some of the Wild West killers out there. And when we think about it in modern day, we think they all lived at the same time. But no, like while Billy Kid was a kid, so and so was out there. And by the time he, uh, Billy the Kid was before he died, so and so else was a kid. Like some of these gunslingers we hear about, it actually was over a 30, 40 year span from, you know, the late, the mid to late 1800s to the early 1900s. So, like, some of these guys were like 40 in 1912. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah, right before we went through World War I. And I had this weird realization because we're now 2023 and, you know, the young cats, oh, the Gen Z, they were born in the late 1900s. Holy shit, we were. And I'm damn proud of it. It's like, I'm born in 78. And you're like, holy crap, 78 was closer to 1912 when these guys are still around, <laughs> you know, than it is 2023. And it's like, my grandfather was a kid when some of these guys were still alive. You know, his parents and his grandparents, that was their contemporaries. Billy the Kid, Jesse James were their contemporaries, or my my grandfather's sake, their third cousin through marriage. Um and I got to realize, wow, we we were born in the 1900s. And how freaking cool is that to think about like those born mm-hmm. in the 70s, 80s, and even my daughter who was born in 1997. You know, we were like the last of the you know, I don't even I don't even have a cool catchphrase to put on that, but the fact that we were born in the 1900s, so right right when everything was basically being created and brought to where it's at today. It's just that realization is like, wow, how cool is that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of things that don't exist anymore, good old-fashioned bookstores. If you have a books a million around, I suggest you hop down in the car and go down there this week because every once in a while they liquidate stuff. And when I say liquidate stuff, I mean $50 books for $12.38. And this week isn't much reading, but it's called Whatcha Perusing? Check this out. <laughs> you want to talk about cool. I was there and I'm going to go back because they have another one on sale, another $50 book on sale for 12 bucks. It's real. It's a uh, historical battlegrounds then and now. So you'll see modern day photos from like the book was cool. put out two years ago. Here's Polo. machines of war. Oh, wow. But this is nothing but in depth color of firearms, oh, wow. tanks, airplanes, Going all the way, but they don't have everything because then it'd be a, a huge thing. But I mean, we're going back to Spartan <laughs> and Roman times. And, I mean, wow. this thing is sweet. That is pretty cool. Um, you want to see what a 15th century Balmadad cannon looks like? Here it goes in all its glory. Um, wow. Fun fact. So this book is is splitting up by. Um, Pre-industrial weapons. <laughs> so it starts off pre-industrial weapons, and then it goes to um, 1500 to 1815 weapons. So here you got swords and sabers and, and stuff like that. And then it goes to the 1815 to the 1914. So you got, you're looking down the barrel of a Gatling gun. Oh, yeah. you got Civil War swords and all that in here, swords and bayonets. Speaking of the old West, we got our early Colt revolvers and your and all that good stuff. Wow, what a great book! And what I was shocked and, and to figure out 
We know that the M1 Garand wasn't issued until what? Three or four months after Guadalcanal kicked off, which was August 7th, 1942. And we know that the M1 Garand, they had to go back and adjust the gas block. Check us out the old gold body, Henry Repeaters. I mean, this book is just fantastic. Wow. It's so well done. So I'm looking at here and Springfield. Okay. So here's something I didn't know. Springfield, 1903. Impressed by the Mauser rifle U.S. troops encountered during the uh, war against Spain, the United States Ordnance Department looked to replace the Craig rifles. Negotiating its license to build the Mauser design of its own, the result was the uh, 30-inch, 30, 30 I'm sorry, 30-06 rifle magazine 1903. Example shown here with an experimental 25-round magazine. Did you know that the 1903 had a 25-round magazine before World War II? No, no. I didn't either. Goodness gracious. But what was more surprising is the M1 Garand was actually developed in like 1937, which was surprising to me. I just figured it came out like, okay, 41. No, I'm trying to find it in here. But I mean, look, I mean, look at this beautiful, on the, and I know you guys listen to audio, you have to go on YouTube. I mean, it has, every once in a while they'll pick one, like this is the Gatling gun, and they're showing all the levers, close-ups, it's more than just the barrel. They're giving you the full rundown of the Gatling gun. Here we got the Vickers M M1, but um, and then why stop at guns and tanks? Let's let's talk battle pilots. I mean, they got freaking steamers on here. We're looking at the um, the Miska sailboat. Here's a picture of of the bridge. I mean, beautiful this, photography. Yeah, th this isn't just you know. Here we go, 1914 to 1918. We got tanks on here. We got. Um, Rifles early. I didn't know. Here's another one. Um, short magazine lead Enfield with Mills bomb launcher. Here's a World War One Enfield rifle with an early grenade launcher on the front. Didn't it know is. that was a thing. Then they have a here's a oh, here's a Browning automatic rifle. I was a little disappointed they didn't have a um, a PPSH in here. Then they got the. Uh, Let's look at some tomahawk, some uh, battle axes from World War One. Let's look at some maces, some clubs. We got the British spiked club in here. And, uh, um, a lot of times I actually tell you the actual weight. Uh, let's see. This club wood handle whittled from hardwood incorporates both horseshoe nails and stabbing spike to, um, at the enlarged head. It also has serrated, was also serrated to improve the grip and the wrist. I mean, this thing just, it's a beautiful book. World War One tanks, and we're gonna skip ahead. Just skip ahead. You got your uh, F-15s, SR-71 Blackbirds. I mean, it has modern day stuff too, so it's not just pre-war. I think the latest uh, 1991 to present, and so it's got Russian tanks in here. Here's inside of some Russian tanks, and so this is a fantastic book. But the fact that you can get this on sale at Books a Million for thirteen dollars, <laughs> that's like all day long. It's like why would he not? And so that's just another, and that's a that's a great coffee table book. All yeah, absolutely. I was just thumb through it again. They actually have a um, segment on the um, 
Harley Davidsons. They got motorcycles in here too. Look at that. So I mean, this when it says machines of war, it's more than just firearms and grenades. It's it's everything. And so that's what I've been perusing. I'm still reading four hours of uh, Fury, and I'm three quarters of the way through that. But um, but that's what I have going on over here. You getting coming down the old pike there, Dennis? Um, I've just been. Uh, I got a new home, so I've, I've finally got all of my uh, my books and everything out of storage, and I've just been loving dusting them off and putting them where they belong and where they're happy on bookshelves and surrounding my. You'll, you'll get to see my office uh, uh, coming up the next couple of weeks. Um, the now, are you in San Antonio that, proper, uh, sir? Are you in San Antonio proper? No, I, I moved to a small town outside. Uh, it's called Castroville. Yeah, it's in Medina County outside in San Antonio. So, yeah, I'm super excited because I finally get to uh, get all the books out and, yeah, make them happy. And it's just fills you with joy to look across and see all those, all those books there. And uh, plus all my research and everything. So, yeah, and then I've, I've got uh, my goal is to... Uh, I, I want to do a complete history of LCI operations in World War II. And I've got, you know, I did hundreds of uh, interviews for that. Um, and I've definitely got a lot of work that's already been done. But, uh, you know, so that's kind of something that I'm working on right now. Um, and then, of course, I've got this book on the Saipan, the Suicide Cliffs, that's been um, going to be coming out pretty soon. So. No, you're talking about LCIs. I was like, do they have landing crafts in here? I'd have to, you know, flip through here. But, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if they had some landing crafts in here. I'd have to oh, yeah. go through Probably it. But maybe it's forces. Yeah, Jeff would love the uh, World War One. They got a bunch of World War One planes in here. Jeeps and tractors. Let's see here. Tanks, tanks, tanks. Lots of tanks. Yeah, I'll have to go through here and see if they have any cool LCI stuff. I'll send you photos up. But, yeah, that's going to wrap it up for this episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. Once again, we want to thank each and every one of you for your continued support of what we do here. And please, once again, if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts or any of the other podcast platforms, give us a rating and review. That goes a long way. Um, what it'll do is when people are listening to other historical-based podcasts, Apple say, hey, people who listen to that also listen to this. And it's just another way to spread the word around. And um, so thank you guys, each and every one of you, for myself and Mr. Dennis Blocker. And on behalf of Jeff Copsetta and Henry Sledge, we want to thank each and every one of you. And we will talk to you all next week. This has been.